Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, December 21st, 2023. The only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. A top Colorado court bars Trump from the state's 2024 ballot. The EU agrees to an overhaul of its migration system. Hamas's leader arrives in Egypt to discuss a potential hostage deal. Russia advances in four parts of Ukraine. The U.S. trades a Maduro ally for American detainees. France's parliament adopts a controversial immigration law. Polls open in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The U.S. sanctions a multinational network for allegedly supplying Iran's drone production. A former doctor is jailed for his participation in the Rwandan genocide. And Rite Aid Pharmacy is banned from using AI facial recognition. Donald Trump is topping today's podcast as Colorado's top court bars him from the state's 2024 ballot. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, New York Times, CNN, Guardian, and Politico. The Supreme Court of Colorado on Tuesday disqualified former President Donald Trump from running for office again in the state, ruling he had incited an insurrection and supported the U.S. Capitol's siege in 2021. The court applied Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in the ruling, which bars people who engage in insurrection after taking an oath to support the U.S. Constitution, and ordered Trump's removal from Colorado's Republican primary ballot. The 4-3 ruling, which applies only to Colorado and comes in advance of the 2024 presidential election, is set to be placed on hold until January 4th, pending Trump's appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Colorado top court decision this week overturned a November ruling by a lower court judge who had found Trump responsible for the January 6th Capitol riots, but didn't bar him, arguing that it was unclear if Section 3 of the 14th Amendment covered the presidency. Trump's campaign is set to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, if it decides against him, could seal his fate in all 50 states, not only Colorado. Amid these developments, the Supreme Court is currently debating whether Trump is immune from criminal charges related to his alleged attempt to subvert the 2020 election as part of a separate case. Eric, thank you. And on every podcast, here's a point where we start separating the fact from the narrative spin. I'm going to start this first round of spin with a Democratic narrative provided by the L.A. Times. The following 16 days will be a real roller coaster for the American political landscape. The narrow way out given to Donald Trump by the Denver court has been sealed until SCOTUS comes to a decision. Keeping the U.S. president out of the ambit of the 14th Amendment or Insurrection Clause defies logic. Trump was caught red-handed, and he cannot be allowed a route back to office. The pro-Trump narrative comes from Fox News. In a way, this temporary setback will only boost Donald Trump's popularity among voters. If it did find against him, contrary to a previous ruling, the sheer partisanship of the Colorado Supreme Court would be put out there for everyone to see. Since there is no way Trump can be defeated in the polls, the system is now trying to block him down by other means. Americans are pinning their hopes on the Supreme Court to come to the right decision and allow Trump to run. And on just about every story, the Metaculous Prediction community has got an opinion. They share their nerd narrative. Today, they think that there is a 47% chance that if the 2024 U.S. presidential election is Trump versus Biden, that Trump will win, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. 
The European Union agrees to a major deal to reform their migration system. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, DW.com, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. According to a statement from the EU's Spanish presidency on Wednesday, the EU has reached a deal to overhaul its migration system that will include faster vetting of irregular arrivals, developing border detention centers, accelerating deportation for rejected asylum applicants, and taking pressure off of southern countries experiencing higher numbers of migrants. Under the proposal, which now must be passed by all individual EU member states and the European Parliament, non-border countries will be required to accept 30,000 migrants or pay 20,000 pounds, roughly 21,870 U.S. dollars per person, into an EU fund. The deal, praised by European Parliament President Roberta Metsola, who said it will, quote, go down in history, comes as EU border index Frontex has registered more than 355,000 irregular border crossings as of the end of November, a 17% jump. While European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said this will allow Europeans, rather than smugglers, to decide who comes to the EU. Amnesty International argued that it would set back European asylum law for decades to come. Migration in the EU, which allows residents of each country to freely cross other borders, has become tricky due to its external border that stretches from the Mediterranean Sea, which connects to North Africa and the Middle East, all the way to Russia. Furthermore, 22 of the 27 member states are part of the borderless Schengen area, which makes tracking the movement of people even harder. This also comes as the French parliament on Tuesday passed its own immigration law, which strengthens the government's deportation powers and limits access to children's welfare, housing, and citizenship for foreigners. Adam, thanks for presenting those facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Europart. This bill is a historic show of international solidarity. As nations throughout the continent struggle to absorb mass numbers of migrants without proper time or resources, this bill will provide the necessary digital screening and physical infrastructure needed to lessen the burden on countries that typically receive migrants first. Once implemented, this law will help Europe take in deserving migrants humanely and effectively while keeping out bad actors like human smugglers. The establishment critical narrative to counter that is provided by Amnesty International. This law is far from humane and is instead a codified violation of human rights, with individual countries now allowed to reject asylum claimants due to arbitrary definitions of mass migration, EU states will begin to shuffle vulnerable beings across the continent like pieces on a chessboard. Countries will also be able to decide whether someone is a real asylum seeker or part of a smuggling ring, therefore delegitimatizing the asylum status of people fleeing persecution. This is wrong on every front and should be overturned before people get hurt. We wrap it up with a cynical narrative coming from European Conservative. European elites are only talking about mass migration now because the public has finally spoken out against it and elections are coming up. After millions of undocumented migrants entered Europe over the past two decades, EU member states are waking up to the fact that they have no national sovereignty or control over their borders. This has affected the politics, culture, and safety of individual states, from sexual assaults in Germany 
to knife attacks against children in Ireland. Europeans are tired of the patronizing top-down approach to this issue. A Hamas leader arrives in Egypt to discuss a potential hostage deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, New York Times, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, and BBC News. Qatar-based Hamas leader Ismail Haniya traveled to Egypt on Wednesday in a rare diplomatic intervention amid intensive talks on a new ceasefire to let aid reach Gaza and exchange Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. Yet Israel and Hamas have publicly stated irreconcilable positions on any halt to fighting. This visit comes after Israel proposed a week-long pause in fighting in exchange for the release of 40 hostages, including women, elderly, and those in need of urgent care. But an Israeli official has cautioned that the two sides were, quote, not near a final deal at the moment, as Hamas hopes for a permanent ceasefire. Meanwhile, the U.N. Security Council again postponed a much-anticipated vote on a resolution calling for a halt in fighting in Gaza and a major increase in humanitarian aid deliveries at the request of the U.S. to allow more time for negotiations. Intense fighting has continued across the Gaza Strip, with Israeli forces reportedly pounding Gaza City's Shujaya neighborhood and striking a residential building near a hospital in Rafah, whose population density has allegedly exceeded 12,000 people per square kilometer, as Israel previously designated the area as being safe, ordering people to migrate there. The area has been bombarded on a daily basis. Earlier this week, Israeli forces made public a large tunnel shaft in Gaza that they discovered just a few hundred meters from the heavily fortified Erez crossing and a nearby Israeli military base, which is connected to a sprawling tunnel network across Gaza and allegedly facilitated preparations for the October 7th attack. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left at least 20,000 people in the Gaza Strip dead, while the official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people. It is estimated that over 100 Israeli hostages out of the 240 captured on October 7th remain alive in the Gaza Strip. Thank you, Eric, for the update and the situation unfolding in the Middle East. We've got a pro-establishment narrative to begin our round of spins provided by CNN. Though, of course, Israel has a right to dismantle Hamas's military capabilities, it must wage this war in a humane way. The amount of civilians being killed will only galvanize Palestinians against peace and push them into the arms of Hamas. A more thorough and surgical campaign is now needed to eliminate Hamas's leadership in Gaza, as Israel is losing global support. Jerusalem Post has a pro-Israel narrative for this story. This has indeed been a tragic war, but Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Though it seems that the Biden administration wants to pressure Israel into a ceasefire, Israel must push back against such short-sighted thinking. As a sovereign country, Israel has the right to defend itself from terrorism and pursue its own interests. Hamas's military capabilities must be eliminated so that the group can never launch a terrorist attack like October 7th again. We're going to continue the spins this time with a pro-Palestine narrative provided by Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Israel is killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate and clearly wants to depopulate the Gaza Strip. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely. 
The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative saying there's a 57% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Russia has advanced in four parts of Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Understanding War, Ukraine Forum, and Reuters. Russian forces in Ukraine advanced in at least four areas of the front line, according to the latest analysis from the Institute for the Study of War, or the ISW. ISW, a U.S. military-affiliated think tank that tracks battlefield progress in the war, said on Tuesday that over the past day of fighting, Russia made confirmed gains near the city of Kupyansk in the Kharkiv region, as well as near the cities of Bakhmut and Avdivka and Donetsk. Russia has also made a confirmed advance southwest of Donetsk City. In addition to the four advances, ISW said that newly published footage of Russian forces in the Zaporizhia region, which had been successfully geolocated, showed them to be further advanced than previously thought. However, ISW said it could not confirm whether the advance was made in the last 24 hours or how, in fact, the territory was won. The institute added that fighting also continued in the Kherson region, where the front line separating Russia and Ukraine largely runs along the Dnipro River that splits the region, and that there were no new advances for either country in Kherson. Meanwhile, ISW did not record any frontline advances for Ukraine during the time period. In overnight attacks, Ukraine officials said on Wednesday that Russia fired two missiles and 19 Shahid drones, 18 of which it said were shot down by missile defenses. The two missiles were recorded striking the Kharkiv region, reportedly hitting the offices of a transportation depot and damaging its grounds and a nearby residential property. There were no reports of civilian casualties. Elsewhere, Democrat and Republican leaders in the U.S. Senate both confirmed that while negotiations are ongoing, a vote on a U.S. military package for Ukraine will not take place before early 2024. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Democrat from New York, said, Our negotiators are going to be working very, very diligently over the December and January break period, and our goal is to get something done as soon as we get back. Thanks, Adam. Our first spin is a pro-Russian narrative coming from Guardian. There will be peace in Ukraine when Russia achieves its objectives. Those objectives remain unchanged from the start of the special military operation. Those being the denazification of Ukraine, its demilitarization, as well as the guaranteeing of the country's neutral status. That's going to be countered with a pro-Ukraine narrative, provided by the Seattle Times. Despite the setbacks for Ukraine, Kiev is still confident that it can achieve military victory. Ukraine is also confident it will receive the weapons it needs from the U.S. and the West early next year. While Putin is no closer to achieving his goals, Ukraine is now closer to the path to EU integration. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. The United States releases a Maduro ally in a prisoner swap with Venezuela. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NPR Online News, CBS, NBC, Associated Press, and NBC6 South Florida. In a prisoner swap with Venezuela, the U.S. released a close ally of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, Alex Saab, in exchange for 10 Americans who were imprisoned in the South American country. 
The deal also saw the Biden administration secure the extradition of Leonard Francis, a wanted defense contractor better known as Fat Leonard, who is at the heart of a major Pentagon bribery scandal. The State Department claimed that six of the 10 Americans returning home were, quote, wrongfully detained, including Evan Hernandez, Jarrell Kenimore, Joseph Cristela, and Savoy Wright. The Biden administration didn't name the other Americans who were being released. Saab, a Colombian businessman arrested for money laundering in 2020, played an alleged role in a bribery scheme of Venezuelan government officials and the laundering of $350 million in Venezuelan assets. Meanwhile, Fat Leonard was behind one of the biggest bribery scandals in the U.S. Navy history before he fled to Venezuela weeks before his sentencing last year. The deal also requires Maduro's government to free 21 Venezuelan prisoners and ensures that U.S. sanctions on the oil-producing nation that were suspended in October remain paused. This marks the Biden administration's latest effort to bring back Americans who are detained abroad after the White House cinched a similar deal last year that traded a Russian arms dealer for basketball star Brittany Griner. Thanks for the facts, Eric. The spins are going to begin with a Republican narrative provided by Vaz. Biden's administration continues to show its weakness as it bends the knee to another foreign dictator. The authoritarian Maduro regime has already shown it has no respect for Biden's government as it continues to win concessions from the U.S., echoing last year's disastrous deal to send one of Russia's most lethal arms dealers back to Moscow, this latest deal makes it clear that foreign dictators can hold Biden's government hostage by arresting Americans. The Democratic narrative comes from Newsweek. The White House secured a massive victory in its swap with Venezuela and was able to bring home U.S. citizens who were trapped in the South American country. While some may criticize Biden for returning close Maduro ally Alex Saab, the fact is that the president has an obligation to his citizens. If swapping one Venezuelan prisoner allows 10 Americans to be freed, that's definitely a worthwhile exchange. Eric, that was one of my favorite shows growing up when I was a kid. Uh, Prisoner Swap? No, Fat Leonard. Hey, 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 it's Fat Leonard. Oh, that's right, that's right. That was, uh, I'm going to sing a song for you. I forgot, because you're, I remember you had to watch Fat Leonard because your family was too cheap to buy the premium cable, so we all. <laughs> no, Fat Leonard was the equivalent that grew up in the, in the, the rural areas, you know. The, He's the one that wore the straw hat. It was on, it, it was right after Hee Haw. <laughs> The French Parliament adopts a controversial immigration law. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Le Monde, Guardian, and the New York Times. The French Parliament adopted a controversial new immigration bill backed by President Emmanuel Macron by a large majority on Tuesday. Despite major opposition in his party due to the law's support from the far right, the law previously passed the upper house Senate. The tightened immigration bill passed the National Assembly, or the lower house, with the votes of the ruling centrist coalition and the conservatives, with 349 in favor and 186 against, meaning that it did not need the support of Marine Le Pen's far-right Reassemblement National, or the RN, to pass through. Key left-wing members of Macron's Renaissance Party and the Allied factions rejected the amended bill and accused Macron of giving in to pressure from the far right. Health Minister Aurélien Rousseau offered his resignation, while the socialist leader in the National Assembly, Boris Valoud, condemned the law as a great moment of dishonor for the government. 
A central component of the bill stipulates that certain Social Security benefits from foreigners should be made contingent on a five-year stay in France, or 30 months for those in employment, while also introducing migration quotas, among other measures. The government argues that the bill also contains liberal elements, such as the legalization of undocumented workers in sectors with labor shortages. While the French government rejected objections to the amended bill, arguing that the lack of stricter immigration rules has boosted the far right, RN leader Marine Le Pen described the vote as a great ideological victory for our movement. According to the far right, French citizens should have preferential or even exclusive access to state subsidies and other benefits. The vote came after the original draft legislation was rejected by members of the far left and far right in the lower house last week. To save the bill, the government, which no longer has a parliamentary majority, held intensive talk with the right-wing opposition, with Macron calling for an intelligent compromise to protect the general interest. Adam, thanks for laying out the facts. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A. It's coming from Le Monde. The amended bill is the most regressive immigration reform in 40 years and a slap in the face for migrants who have been living in France for decades. The bill could only be pushed through without the support of the far right because the governing coalition bowed to their key demands to save Macron's flagship project. With this discriminatory law, Macron is betraying France's liberal values, while Le Pen enjoys a major victory. Macron came into office promising to keep the radical right in check. But rather than weakening Le Pen, he is paving the way for her and maneuvering France into a new political crisis. The Financial Times is going to continue the spin with a narrative B. The law is a balanced compromise, with which the Macron government provided its ability to act in a difficult situation. What weakens the radical right the most is a government that faces up to present-day challenges and does not hesitate to take necessary measures in France's national interest. All the critics of the bill seem to ignore the fact that the government is the democratic representation of the people and that the French have spoken out in favor of tightening immigration laws. For Macron's government, the focus is on solutions, not on Le Pen's tactical maneuvers. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 14% chance that Macron will dissolve the French National Assembly before the end of his term. The Democratic Republic of Congo election begins amid delays and logistics issues. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, Guardian, African News, and BBC News. After a nearly three-hour delay, some 44 million voters in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or DRC, headed to the polls to cast their ballots in the presidential election on Wednesday. Issues that have arisen include people not seeing their names on voting lists and smudged ink on voting cards making them illegible and resulting in their votes being discarded. In the city of Bunia, located in the country's violence-plagued eastern region, security forces reportedly fired warning shots after a voting station was vandalized and kits were destroyed amid protests by displaced citizens who want to vote in their hometowns. Authorities sought extra helicopters to open polling stations in areas lacking good roads or security. According to the National Episcopal Conference of Congo and the Church of Christ in Congo Observer Mission, 31% of polling stations were open as of midday, 
with 45% of voting machines and stations that were open experiencing problems. The group also claimed that around 25,000 of its observers were unable to reach polling centers. For the first time in the country's history, Congolese nationals living in five other countries, including South Africa and Belgium, have been allowed to cast their vote from abroad. In the eastern region, however, Human Rights Watch has said that upwards of 1.5 million people may not be able to vote due to security issues. With the Independent National Electoral Commission expected to announce the results on December 31st, Election Chief Denise Kadima said voting would be extended in the affected areas, with polls due to reopen Thursday. Kadima also claimed there were at least 3,244 attempts to hack the commission's computers. The election, in which incumbent President Felix Shisakidi is taking on 18 opposition candidates, comes as the world's third-largest copper producer faces crises of poverty and rebel violence. Among the opposition candidates who have pledged to outperform Shishikidi in bringing peace, stability, and economic development is the 2018 runner-up Martin Fayulu. Thanks, Eric. The Daily Maverick's going to start the spin with the narrative A. President Shishikidi has not only done well for himself given the geopolitical and economic circumstances of the DRC, but he's done so as an underdog. While things certainly aren't perfect right now, Shisekiti could win this election and build up his successful accession into the East African community and post-pandemic economic growth. The East African gives us narrative B. The Congolese people shouldn't accept any election outcome if these widespread irregularities aren't fixed. Given the fact that the 2018 election was not fully accepted, 2023 should be one where every vote is counted and the voting process is tightly monitored. If it takes more time to ensure election integrity, then so be it. The U.S. sanctions a network for allegedly supporting Iran's drone program. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Binar News, Fox News, Air Force Technology, ABC News, and Iran International. The U.S. Department of the Treasury issued fresh sanctions Tuesday against a foreign procurement network that has allegedly evaded trade restrictions to supply Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, Aerospace Force Self-Sufficiency Organization with sensitive equipment used to build unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs. The third package of sanctions on the production of Shahid series suicide drones targets 10 entities and four individuals located in Hong Kong, Indonesia, Iran, and Malaysia, blocking their access to assets within the U.S. and preventing them from doing business with U.S. citizens and financial institutions. This comes as a multi-year U.S. Homeland Security investigations probe identified a network made up of front companies, Iranian intermediary companies, and logistics businesses allegedly used to transfer sensitive foreign technology for Iran's weapons program. These sanctions fall under Executive Order 13382, which targets weapons of mass destruction proliferators and their supporters. In addition, the U.S., Britain, and the European Union have also sanctioned either Iran or companies linked to the weapons supplied by the country. Concurrently, the U.S. Department of Justice announced the seizure of more than $800,000 from companies linked to the IRGC's drone program, as well as the indictment of Iranian national Hossein Hatifi Artikani and China-based Gary Lam for illegally exporting U.S.-made microelectronics to Iran. 
Iran-made drones have become a key part of the country's military and strategic approach, allegedly being put to use by its allies in conflicts around the world, including by Russia in Ukraine, by militant groups in Syria and Iraq against U.S. bases, and by Yemeni Houthis in the Red Sea. Adam, thanks for laying out those facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from TS2 Space. These sanctions are much needed to halt the nefarious Iran's drone program, which poses a threat not only to regional security but also to international peace. Without such measures to enforce existing restrictions to prevent Iran from accessing dual-use technology, Tehran will be able to continue ramping up its drone production and supply Russia and other of its allies with drones to use in conflict zones. The Tehran Times is going to counter that with an establishment-critical narrative. Military cooperation between amicable countries such as Russia and Iran is both a legitimate and effective strategy for ensuring regional security and economic growth. The West continues to use Ukraine as a propaganda tool to demonize Iran-Russian ties as a threat to global peace. But such accusations are baseless attempts to distort the reality of friends on the international stage. Western hysteria over Iran's drone program is a prominent example of this. The nerds from Metaculus say there's an 8% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before 2025. France jails a former doctor in the Rwandan genocide trial. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, France 24, RFI, Le Monde, Euronews, and ABC News. A former physician who participated in the 1994 Rwandan genocide was sentenced to 24 years in prison by France. On Wednesday, Sostine Munyamana, a 68-year-old former gynecologist, was convicted of crimes against humanity and for his role in the plot to plan these crimes. Following 100 days of mass killings in 1994, which resulted in an estimated 800,000 deaths among Tutsis and moderate Hutus, Munyamana is the sixth person to go on trial in France. The trial took place at the Aziz Court in Paris and lasted six weeks. The accusation against Munyamana was made in 1995 in Bordeaux, just months after he arrived in France. Activists had raised alarms about the potential perpetrators of the genocide fleeing to the European nation. Munyamana's attorneys declared they would appeal both the decision and the prison sentence of 24 years, given that the sum total of his decision demonstrated the traits of a genocidaire, the public prosecution had requested a 30-year sentence. Munyamana has not been incarcerated and has been at large during the trial. As long as an appeal is pending, he will not be sent to prison. In 1993, Munyamana was a 38-year-old gynecologist and a close friend of Jean Cambada, the leader of the interim administration that was in charge of the genocide. Cambada is the only head of government to have ever entered a guilty plea for genocide. France has stepped up efforts to apprehend and prosecute genocide suspects in the wake of better ties with Rwanda, which has long accused France of enabling the genocide. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We're going to start the spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Jurist. In the past few years, France has stepped up efforts to apprehend and prosecute genocide suspects. This is the sixth case about the genocide in Rwanda that is making its way through the legal system in Paris. However, since the genocide took place 30 years ago and first-hand accountants are getting harder to come by, it's getting harder and harder to prosecute the alleged perpetrators of the crime. 
the victims of this horrible murder have been able to seek justice and accountability because of the collective efforts of a, quote, universal jurisdiction, which permits France to take major human rights crimes committed outside the nation under specific circumstances. JusticeInfo.net gives us an establishment critical narrative. When it comes to prosecuting those who are accused of committing the genocide in Rwanda, France's, quote, universal jurisdiction has some serious problems. The genocide occurred far away and was three decades ago. Over time, the evidence has deteriorated, and there are a plethora of problems, including the challenges of credible witness testimony after such a long time. It's not reasonable to believe that the Paris Aziz court has the right tools for delivering fair sentences. Sadly, there are deep systemic problems in the global system, allowing for the swift and effective prosecution of perpetrators of genocide. And we're going to wrap up this spin with a nerd narrative that says that there's a 15% chance that an East African federation will exist and govern before 2040. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And in our final story today, Rite Aid Pharmacy has been banned from using AI facial recognition. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Associated Press, Fox News, Boston 26 News, ABC News, and CNBC. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC, on Tuesday prohibited Rite Aid from using artificial intelligence-based facial recognition technology for five years in an agreement that settles charges that the bankrupt pharmacy chain's AI technology harmed customers. Rite Aid reportedly used facial recognition technology for surveillance purposes, but the FTC claims that the system misidentified thousands of customers as potential shoplifters, disproportionately affecting non-white shoppers. The FTC filed a complaint in federal court arguing that Rite Aid's facial recognition also matched customers with people who were enrolled in the database based on activity thousands of miles away and flagged the same person at dozens of stores across the country. Rite Aid said that it, quote, respects the FTC's inquiry and welcomes its agreement with the regulator. However, the pharmacy rejected the agency's allegations. Rite Aid says that it only implemented a pilot surveillance program in a limited number of stores and stopped using the technology over three years ago. Rite Aid reportedly used the system from 2012 to 2020, with the FTC saying the pharmacy violated a 2010 agreement by failing to protect sensitive financial and medical information. Tuesday's agreement requires Rite Aid to take safety measures such as deleting photos taken by the AI software and informing customers when their likeness is logged into a database and when AI technology is being used. The agreement comes as Rite Aid navigates massive shakeups after filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in October. The struggling pharmacy's proposed settlement is subject to approval by the bankruptcy court. Adam, thanks for those facts. The progressive narrative is our first spin, coming from Amnesty International Canada. Rite Aid's settlement is yet another example of how AI is riddled with structural racism, just like society at large is. Rite Aid's facial recognition software produced thousands of false positives, mostly by misidentifying people of color, putting marginalized groups at further risk. This issue isn't exclusive to the pharmacy, as countless studies show that AI has a racial bias and is discriminatory, 
AI needs an overhaul to prevent such practices before it can be a prominent part of society. And we're going to wrap up today's podcast with a conservative narrative provided by American Spectator. While AI may be a novel development that brings new issues to the forefront, it can't escape America's favorite pastime, complaining about racism. Despite racism being legally and morally weeded out of the West, the mainstream media loves to play up any instance of perceived bias. The left has been brainwashed into thinking that group differences don't exist and that any unequal outcomes are purely caused by social factors. AI doesn't buy this woke falsehood yet, which is why it's falsely dubbed racist. (laughs) So let me get this straight here. The conservatives are saying it's not the computers are racist. The computers just ain't woke. And they're not playing. They're not playing along with you leftists. You that's left right. us the communists, that right? And right. that's what it is. I, I think you when know you what I want. You know what I want to know, Adams. I want to know what color is that computer that they be talking about, <laughs> Eric. Eric, you know what I think though. It, it, my thing, I think that this is how computers are taking over. They're, they're, they're throwing out these racist uh, um, mistakes, quote unquote mistakes. And they're watching the infighting taking place against the uh, between oh, the humans. Oh, I see what and you're then saying. They're like, that's what. So they're just fueling the fire. They're just fueling the fire. Exactly. That's how. That's how I it understand. works. That's how these these computers. They're right. they're smart. They really are. You see, they're smart. They're I smarter see. Than Man, us. that was that was smart. They they played the racial profiling card. Oh wow! Bum, bum, Brilliant. Bum. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, December 21st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.